This is what coronavirus sounds like. May the gods be with you. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture beyond the brochure. not ask how you all are this week. I've had a bit of an up and down week in fact. Some of that is literal. As you know I'm currently based in Sheffield and if you've been listening to my recent pods you'll know how I talk a bit about how flat this city isn't. Well I went for a bit of a run on Monday lunchtime taking advantage of a rare period where it was dry sunny and not too windy. I ended up doing a shade under four miles and I can definitively say none of it was flat. Two miles up, two miles down, pretty much. I made it as far as the location of one of Sheffield's many park runs, a park called Concord in the north of the city. Without the E at the end, we're not French. It's a pretty good setting for a park in that it's on the edge of the city, so it offers quite good views over the hills of South Yorkshire, and it feels pretty remote out there. It's always nice to be on the edge of the city, and Sheffield's surroundings are much more impressive than other places I've lived. What Concord Park isn't good for is running barefoot. There's a cement path that the parkrun takes, but it's quite broken up in parts and pretty rough in other sections. Nowhere near as smooth as Castle, or even Hillsborough, so while I made it as far there on my run on Monday, I didn't go all the way around, but stopped and came back along a small loop. I know there's grass, but that's really muddy and full of twigs. And saying that makes me sound like some kind of petulant child. No, can't make me do that, don't wanna. Monday's run also led to the observation that when I'm jogging and running, I'm quite in the zone. A bit like people who run with earphones and listen to music. I can't do that. Partly because I'm always wary the earphones will fall out, but mostly because I can't concentrate on both the music and the running at the same time. But evidently, I don't need to. So, whilst blitzing past one of these small local supermarkets, apparently a friend of mine spotted me and shouted to me at the top of her voice. I didn't notice and ran blithely onward. Weirdly, it was a comment from her earlier that morning that had inspired me to go for a run in the first place. So, sorry about that, P. I was running Monday in part because I didn't go to Parkrun on Saturday. This wasn't for any reason around public health or the weather or anything like that. No, it was something much more mundane. I missed the bus. Well, let's be honest, I wouldn't have missed the bus. But earlier in the week I was having a chat with my friend whose house I'm currently renting a room in and she said she wanted to do more exercise. I told her about Parkrun and she felt interested enough to want to get involved. She'd only been walking around at this stage, so I figured she could pop along. I'd do the run then meet her as she was walking and walk with her the rest of the way around. Sounds pretty reasonable, hey? So on the Friday, we had a wander around two of the local parkrun courses, one fairly easy one at Hillsborough Park and the one I normally do at Castle. She said she liked the ambience of Castle better, but preferred the fact that Hillsborough only had one hill, and even that isn't too dramatic. Hillsborough is also more or less a direct bus from the house, so we planned to pop over there the next morning. This didn't happen. 
for the slightly ironic reason that she couldn't find her shoes. By the time we got to the bus stop, the bus had gone, so rather than turning up late or going to a different park run, we decided to do our own walk instead, and ended up at a place called Parkwood Springs, which is a park, a woodland, a BMX track, some playing fields, and a great view over the city stretching from Parkhall Flats in the... Well, it's near the railway station, all the way to Hillsborough in the northwest. And yes, you could even see the park runners in the distance in Hillsborough Park, a line of moving figures. It's a strange place in a sense, as the end of it is incredibly close to the city centre, uh, a large area of wild land that in any other city would be utilised for housing or commerce. The southern part of it is, what, a mile away from the city cathedral, and over just over a kilometre from the inner ring road. Part of it previously served as a landfill site, and on the southwestern edge was the old Sheffield Ski Village, burnt down in an accidental fire in 2012, but there are plans to rebuild. At one point a small community was nearby too, but it was bombed during the Second World War and never really rebuilt, and ended up becoming derelict, and people were finally moved out of there in about the 1970s. The area is incredibly steep, obviously, because Sheffield, and rugged, so the community tended to feel cut off from the rest of Sheffield, even though it was so close to the centre, the River Don and a major goods railway line being in the way on the other side. After there, we walked into the centre of Sheffield in a failed attempt to find breakfast, because it's winter, so all the cafes were closed at that time in the morning. Yeah, it made no sense to me either. Sheffield's not exactly a summer tourist destination. We did wander through Victoria Keys, which is most unexpected. It's the Canal Basin, and in common with other English cities, renovated in a traditional style with cobbled streets and old-fashioned houses, and artisanal shops built into the arches of the Victorian viaduct that separates it from the rest of the centre. It's not as big as in Birmingham or Manchester, but it's still quite cute. We saw some people doing stand-up paddleboarding, and they wanted to know if we wanted to take part. Apparently, knowledge of swimming is not necessary, because life jackets... Balance, however, probably is. Also, my dear friend Laura Lundell knows exactly what I'm like in deep water wearing a life jacket, and it's not something I'm keen to repeat in the near future. Just beyond the old canal basin is a large second-hand shop that's built like a rabbit warren, except it has goats. It's an old warehouse and office building, and the shop makes use of the internal layout, with each different room offering its own thing, including furniture, clothing and trinkets. There's a small counter where you can buy hot and cold drinks, crisps and chocolate. And yes, there are goats. Two pygmy goats called Rodney and Ralph who live in pens in one of the open-air passageways inside the shop. Possibly the oddest thing I've seen all week. The shop is called Emmaus and it's actually a charity that provides shelter, work and support for homeless people. Now what all this proves, of course, is that there is so much even close to home that you may not know about. This was all walkable, within a couple of miles even. And though I'd, obviously I've been to Sheffield many times before, I've, I've never really explored it, I guess. I've previously just gone around the centre itself, which is pretty interesting in and of itself, with the aforementioned cathedral, lots of pubs, a thriving art scene, plenty of other things as well. Uh, and then on to friends' houses. Remember, I always say that everywhere is interesting, and... Don't forget one of my earlier podcasts was all about hometown travel, about exploring what's nearby rather than jetting halfway across the world to see something relatively popular. Which, obviously, you can't do at the moment anyway. So there's that. In fact, I can't even do Parkrun anymore as they cancelled it this week. Something about it not being really very apt to have a hundred or so people gather in a small area during a time of an easily transmitted airborne virus. Can't really think how they came to that conclusion. <clears throat> To be fair, though, I was half expecting them to have cancelled it a week earlier at least, so that I didn't get to do it last week anyway didn't make much of a difference to my own mindset. My plan is to do some very early morning runs over the course of the next weeks when nobody is about, while I still can. 
though my understanding is even in severe lockdown regions, solo exercise has been allowed. This does involve me getting up at Sparrow's fart, which never seems to happen, even at the best of times. Eh, we'll see. I did do some yoga today, though, as my I-can't-sit-at-my-computer-all-day excitement. It's something I've been mumbling about for maybe three years, but always felt quite self-conscious, even though I was only ever intending to do it in the comfort of my own home, following YouTube videos. What made that last sentence even weirder is that when I've seen people do it, and the one time I did try in a public setting, it was above a pub in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, of all places, I always felt that 60% of it is pretty much similar to the stretching exercises I do before I go running, and I do those in public, so I don't know where my head's at. Where my head's at? Where my head's at? Where my head's at? Anyway, I did a quick 20-minute beginner session, and my arms still ached a couple of hours afterwards. Like, there's a reason I don't do press-ups. But if I keep it up, hopefully I'll stay fit, even if I can't get outside as much. And it's always been true that my arms aren't the strongest part of my body. You know those um, pull bars you get in gyms and in outdoor gyms in, in parks? I can't do that. I cannot lift myself up on a pull bar because my arms are too weak. My legs, however, are incredibly powerful. That's why I can run up hills. Anyway, as I'm typing this out, which is Friday evening... There has been an announcement that pubs, clubs, restaurants, cinemas and casinos are all to close from this evening. Many of the pubs near me, at least on my Twitter feed, because obviously I follow a few pubs and breweries on Twitter, were starting to do takeaway as they'd previously thought they didn't feel having people drink inside them was really appropriate. I'm not sure if the rules say they still can do this or if they have to close completely, but bear in mind I didn't even know they were allowed to do it anyway. I'd say we'd ventured into a grey area in law. My understanding is that you need different licences for on-site and off-site alcohol sales. Indeed, in many pubs, often over the doorframe, there's a sign saying the landlord is licensed to sell alcohol on the premises. Some say on and off the premises. Interestingly too, what many parts of the world call a liquor store a shop where you can buy beers and wines, etc., we call an off-licence, because they only have a licence to sell alcohol to take away and drink off the premises. Literally, an off-site licence. Anyway, I took advantage of this yesterday. I had to go to my real home in Kirkby and Ashfield to pick up the last of my necessary stuff. The trains there and back were fairly empty, as was, interestingly, the supermarket I passed by to pick up some much-needed foodstuffs, mostly salad, and the only thing I wanted they didn't have was, quite bizarrely, garlic. And the conductors and guards have been instructed on the trains not to come through the carriages to check tickets. That said, there's still quite a few people around on the streets, etc., but we'll see how that ends up going after today's announcement. Also in the supermarket, an Aldi, or an Aldi. I've never been quite sure how to pronounce it. The chap behind me in the queue was buying precisely one item. A bottle of vodka. Priorities. So, to the pub. Well, in fact, uh, it's a micro-pub in Walkley, near Hillsborough, that sells beer to take out anyway. Cans and bottles in the fridge you can have in or out. And obviously they've got draft beers that you normally have in. However, they were offering in repurposed two-pint milk cartons takeout of this draft beer, something I've never done. I'm not ashamed to tell you I got two of them, and six cans and bottles, so I'm all sorted for any upcoming apocalypse. The disadvantage of draft beer is that it has quite a short shelf life, so one of the cartons, a quite fine apricot passion fruit IPA, was dispatched that same evening. 
I am, however, very unused to beer these days. I've gone from having three pints a night at the end of last year to maybe three pints a week in the past month or so. So that beer was all I had. The other draft beer, a stout whose name and origin I failed to make a note of because I forgot, is in the fridge and will be drunk probably tomorrow. The cans, well, despite my Twitter friend's comments, they'll last a while, to be honest. Thursday was also my mother's birthday. She claims to also sometimes listen to my podcast, so I'm not going to be careful with what I say here. Anyway, it's a notable birthday this year as she turns 70, or, to put it another way, the age at which people are recommended to think about social distancing and self-isolation a bit more than the general populace. Obviously, it's not a precise cut-off or a general guideline, as your body suddenly just doesn't change overnight, but it's still something to bear in mind. My mother is not bearing this in mind. See, I called her up and asked how she was doing. Turns out she has a new job, volunteering in a charity shop in her local town. While I didn't ask what the charity was, and no doubt she'll tell me when she hears this pod, due to the nature of the place she lives in, the shop is generally full of people her age and demographic. Her next shift was due to be today, and she saw absolutely no reason to not go in, keep the shop open, and serve all these old people. Now, there's something else you need to know. Her husband, my stepdad, has a number of things I can never remember, no matter how many times I look them up, bit like the capital of Mauritania, and in fact how to spell Mauritania, but one of them is the year that my mother and stepdad got married. It was either 1977 or 1978. I apparently went to it, but I have no recollection of it, obviously. Also, weirdly, I have their surname, but I've never lived with them. But anyway, he has some kind of early-stage kidney failure, and they keep going for tests and checkups. Last one was last week, and the next one's Tuesday, apparently. Nine-mile bus ride each way. The social circle she keeps sound old, too. She was telling me about the lady she used to live next door to when I was growing up. They still know each other, and apparently she's a big hugger, but when they met on Wednesday, Wednesday, they did the whole elbow greeting thing that I so wish they'd videoed, because two 70-year-old women doing an elbow dance deserves to go viral. Seems she's one of these old folks that isn't going to let a mere virus stop her in her tracks. Until it does, I guess. They're not going to take kindly to being told they must stay in by government order, if it comes to that. Not kindly at all. In a way, it's all a bit of a surprise to me. I assumed that she'd be relatively fine with this virus, because, like, I thought she never socialised. They live in a bungalow in a new-build estate in, well, nowhere by the estuary. They're both retired, they like gardening, watching sci-fi, and listening to Radio 2 and reading the Daily Express. And since his diagnosis with kidney disease, my stepdad doesn't drive anymore, really, so they kind of just stay at home and potter. My mother theoretically can drive, it took her about seven or eight attempts, and let's be honest, even I'm probably a better driver than she is, and I've not taken a lesson since 2003. Well, at least I assumed that's what they did. Turns out my mother's like one of those old retired social animals you see in quaint sitcoms. Maybe maybe they're solving murders and crime in their off time, chatting about motives while planting the carrots in the garden. They've promised to save me some carrots for me next time I go up, despite knowing I don't like carrots. But you'll like these carrots, she said. There are carrots. No, mother, I won't. Because, well, I don't like carrots! I'm now wondering if she's in the W.I., attending coffee mornings and cake bakes, making jam and wishing it was 1942 again. After Thursday's conversation, it wouldn't surprise me. The bulk of the chat I had with my mother, though, was her being worried about me. Not worried in a make-sure-you-don't-catch-anything way, 
but more mundane matters, which can be distilled down to one sentence. Oh, now you've moved to Sheffield, you can get a decent job and find someone to date. Like, Mother, do you even know me? Do you read my blog? Do you listen to my podcast? I suspect it's more that she only hears what she wants to hear. Another classic from her on the call was, Oh, you needed to get the travel out of your system. Something she says a lot. At least this time, though, she talked about relationships. She didn't say, oh, you just haven't met the right woman yet. But she did say a classic, oh, I just want you to be happy. She is always rather too interested, though, in the fact that I only ever seem to mention female names, especially in regards to travel. So I'm 100% sure she was thinking it. I mean, I did do pretty much an entire podcast on my sexuality, but hey-ho. She has a point about finding a job, though. See, in a way, I've got this all completely wrong due to my inaction. The thing with a combination of the scaling back of travel and the social distancing that's now been imposed is that there's a lot of people who are in the place I've been for, well, two years since I was made redundant. In that two years, I've spent most of my money on beer and travel and not spent enough time trying to develop other income streams to take advantage of my skills, despite me saying for the entire time that it was something I needed to do. And now, because so many other people are in this position of not having secure employment, if any at all, and stuck at home, there's a glut of people now all going to be fighting for the same opportunities that I've not given any thought to in the past two years. Essentially, I've missed my chance. No one really knows how this future is going to pan out. Some online are saying the age of travel influence is dead. Some others are saying when things bounce back, people are really going to want to travel more, so need people like me, if I'm a travel influencer, which I'm. Well, I'm probably not, to be honest, because I'm not the sort of person to post specifics about a place. I don't talk about 13 cute cafes in London, That is my stereotype travel blogger post, which I suspect is beginning to annoy some of my online friends. Sorry, not sorry, especially to M. Luxton, with whom I've had this chat already. Partly because I'm too lazy to keep that sort of post updated, and partly because I know I'd never be any good at writing it, or at least not as good as many of my travel friends on Twitter. We all have our own lanes, our own niches. Mine appear to involve the history and culture of places you've never heard of, or never thought about. And maybe that sort of thing will become more popular as people realise that nothing is secure and certain, that things will open and close, places will become popular and unpopular, and that people can't imagine they can go everywhere anymore. So the one thing that everywhere has in common is that it has a history. So look to me for a more thorough understanding of a place. I am, of course, available for podcasts and voiceovers at a remarkably cheap rate. Hire me, damn it. Or, once this is all over... Everyone will go, ah, fuck that, and fly off to somewhere to get very, very drunk, and need people like my Twitter travel buddies to tell them where to get what drinks for best effect. And who can blame them, to be honest? I must say now, though, that the one thing I have realised this past week or so about this whole thing is about who and what I am. It's something I've mentioned in earlier podcasts, so it's something I've always been aware of, but this virus thing has particularly brought it home to me, especially while I've been talking to my mother. See, when shit started getting real, when the lockdown started to be enforced in parts of Italy, I was musing about what this meant for me. Remember earlier when I said about missing my chance to make a few varied income streams? I had a couple of sleepless nights wondering if I'd ever even make my money last till the summer, because now I had little chance of getting a decent real job. I was worried about what I'd do, about how I'd pay my bills, about where I lived, and I realised something fundamental. I am a middle-aged, middle-class only child. If all goes completely belly up, I just go back to my parents. They don't know I said that yet. My uncle, for sure, probably doesn't listen to this podcast because he's probably too busy playing football manager while his code compiles. He's a computer programmer and works from home and has practiced social distancing for decades. 
unless you count Morris dancing, which generally doesn't take place this time of year anyway. Side observation, he effectively raised me and most of my friends who have met him can tell pretty obviously within a few seconds of meeting him. But I'm pretty sure if it comes to it, they'll welcome me back for a bit at least. Grudgingly, I grant you, on both sides. But they don't have mortgages, and in the short term, they'd only be too pleased to see me. There is another potential outcome too, given the ferocity of the virus, but you can work that one out for yourself. The fundamental point here is one of privilege. I know that I'll probably come out the other end of this whole chaos much better than a lot of the people I know. And that, that I think is what irks me the most. It makes me feel almost like a helpless observer. So if privilege one is I have somewhere to go if it all goes wrong because I'm middle class with no siblings, privilege two is the sheer fact that it hasn't gone wrong for me yet in the first place. I look at many of my travel friends on Twitter, as I mentioned earlier. This is their career, their livelihood. All those people whose job it is to visit places and talk about them. All those who are employed by tourist boards, by hotels, by travel publishing companies to promote somewhere that people can't go to for the foreseeable future. All those people who get a residual passive income stream from advertising or affiliate links on their blogs and are seeing a major shortfall as people stop booking hotels, stop buying travel gear and stop looking for those 13 cute cafes in London. Because I don't do any of that, I'm, I'm not in the same situation. I'm not desperately looking for work. I haven't budgeted for this. I'm not thinking I can't pay my bills if I don't get any income for a month. If I hadn't spent all my redundancy money on beer and travel, I could last even longer than I'm currently able to, of course. But let's not go into that. And I'm not in that position because I haven't needed to be. Even with my mitherings about my procrastination, my self-confidence and my social anxieties, I'm still in a much better place than many others in my field. And I need to keep remembering that. That's not to say my anxieties and worries aren't valid, of course. This is a bad time for nearly everyone, no matter who you are. Just that I know that in the worst case, I have options. Other people don't have the same options. And the times when I lie in bed wondering if I'll even survive the year, or if I'll get so frustrated and helpless by it all that I decide to pop the pills with the beers, others are lying in bed wondering how they'll just survive the week. My last privilege is, for my age at least, I am relatively fit and healthy. I mean, I'm always a little concerned about my lungs. Having once had pneumonia, I can tell you it's not very pleasant, though it was the coexisting sepsis that made me spend a week in intensive care, but let's not talk about that right now. And apparently, as a very young kid, the doctors were worried a little about my chest. But let's be honest, I run up hills for a hobby, so they're obviously working relatively efficiently. The main reason I went back to Kirkby and Ashfield, to my real house, on Thursday when I did, was because I simply can't justify going back there again till June. My lodger, Sarah, is in one of those high-risk groups, quite immunocompromised. She keeps coming down with Lurky and giving it to me, I may add, but she too has generally always been social distancing anyway. She was social distancing before social distancing was cool. Thus, with a weird hindsight, moving to Sheffield was a great move for her, since if I were in the house too I'd be rather worried about being a carrier of big nasty viruses. Occasionally, she listens to my podcast too, apparently. So if she is listening, Sarah... Put the batteries back in the carbon monoxide alarm. It's for your own benefit. She's not the only person I know with an underlying health condition, though. I know even if I do get the virus, the probability is that it won't affect me too much. I mean, I may already have it, but I'd be in asymptomatic. Who knows? Though as I typed that sentence, I sneezed, and sneezing is not a symptom. But it would be far more serious to someone like her. I was careful when I returned to my house, wearing gloves, trying not to breathe, I'd have taken a ball gag or something, but I seem to have donated mine to my friend Jade, and spending as much time there as possible in my own bedroom, rather than lurking in the kitchen or the living room. Hopefully, it's enough. 
I guess I'll find out if she stops sending me WhatsApp messages complaining about my clothing choices or something. And of course, my mother and stepdad, even if they think they're immune. It's all a bit of a pisser, really. Anyway, as you've noticed, this podcast is a couple of days late, and this is partly because I kind of didn't really know what to talk about. I was going to do one on the Outer Hebrides, perhaps I still will, either next week or at some point in the future, but I wasn't really feeling inspired to do that right now. I'd had a few thoughts over the week as to what else I could talk about, but even at the point of writing I wasn't sure, as I didn't want to record something that came across too pessimistic and depressive. And, of course, something that didn't make me want to drink all of the alcohol I'd bought from the Walkley beer shop. But then, as I was writing it, I kind of got a bit too distracted, firstly by Sheffield, and then by a rant about my mother. The beauty of the way I do my podcasts is that I generally write them out pretty much at the last minute, then record them, so sometimes I don't know how it'll go until I come to write it. Indeed, when I first started writing it out today, I was going to talk about places that I want to go to once travel becomes an option again. As I say, something hopeful. Maybe that's for next week. Until then, don't be a dick, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Asheville studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next time, have a safe journey. Bye for now.